You ever run into any engines on Psalms? Indians, sir? Navajo, to be exact. Corps developed a new code based on their language. It's had quite an impact. So much so, the Navy have decided to go to great lengths to protect it. That's why you're here. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is, wait, you haven't seen? And it's a show we talk about movies and specifically we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host Travis, aka TV's Travis. This is episode number 73. The movie that we watched this week is the 2002 John Woo directed Nick Cage movie, Wind Talkers. And joining me from Joystick and Mouse is Diddy. Howdy folks. Hey, and also from Joystick and Mouse is J Dimes. What's going on? I wanted to get the two of you on here because I wanted the good looking ones from Joystick and Mouse. <laughs> so we are kicking off Cage of Palooza 2020. Uh, last year for August, I did all Nick Cage movies and I had a blast with it. And so I'm going to try and make it a regular thing every year. And sitting around thinking about movies to do, and Don brought up Wind Talkers, I realized I'd never seen it before. And had either of you seen this before? I had I had not. It. <laughs> yeah, you took some convincing to get on the show this week. I will say that. For, for those of you watching and listening, Jay Dimes did not want to do this one. I had to coax him. And it's not because I dislike, you know, being on the show with you, Travis. I love this show. But this movie... So, all right, uh, let's start with the cast. That's where I like to start. We'll get into the movie itself here in a little bit. But um, obviously the man we're here to, to talk about most is Nicolas Cage. He's in this. He stars in this. He's actually not bad, but he's not asked to do a whole lot either. It's, a, it's, a weird, it's weird to have him starring in the movie, and he's, he's in most of the scenes, but most of his acting is not done through dialogue. No, it's it's a lot of looks. It's a lot. Of, it's a little bit of early John Wick. Yeah, like he's uh, he's a little bit of a badass out there. Yeah, which is that's something I do want to get into um, as far as like his portrayal. But I think he was fine. And like I like mixing up my Nick Cage movies and get something where he's good in it, and then you can go with the crazy and get something like where. You know, he's just there for a paycheck or he's just gone way over the top. This is very subdued Nick Cage for the most part. He has a couple of his kind of customary freakouts, um, but they're very short. So he is playing uh, a character named Joe Enders. He's a corporal. Now, first of all, he's a corporal in the Marine Corps in World War II. But Nicolas Cage was, I think, in his 40s when they made this movie. So that already kind of doesn't really match up very well. But fine, we can suspend disbelief for Hollywood because Tom Hanks, a couple of years earlier, did essentially the same thing with Saving Private Ryan. So, but he, the movie opens with him on uh, one of the Solomon Islands, and they basically get ambushed, and his whole whole regiment, whole platoon, whatever he's got there, all of them get killed, and he's the only one to survive somehow magically, and he's kind of he wants back in, but he. I don't know. He's he's at like the end of his rope almost. I get this feeling throughout most of the movie. Like he wanted to go back to war more so because he felt like he couldn't do anything else. 
I don't know. Yeah. Can I just say, I think that that first scene is the worst acted scene in the movie. That that opening one on the Solomon Islands? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I, I didn't think much of that oh, at all. So bad. Yeah, it was it was way over melodramatic from every character. They were all like, "Damn you, John and en- Joe Enders," and and all that kind of stuff. Like it it was that was probably the worst scene. And what's interesting is they put it right at the beginning of the movie. That should be your you know Omaha Beach landing. That should be your your that that's what's supposed to hook people and bring them in. And it definitely didn't. Now I, I'm sure this movie somewhat gets unfairly compared to Saving Private Ryan, and it's not the same kind of movie at all, or from the same director or style of director even. But you're right, that one wasn't very good. Uh, and Nick Cage is the only person from that scene to continue on, so they definitely didn't uh, spend a whole lot of money or casting time uh, figuring out yeah. those other people, which I couldn't tell any of them apart anyway. I, I they all looked like the same person, like every other soldier in that scene looked the, like the same person to me. So, um, we had, so then we get to meet our, uh, Navajo code talker, Ben Yazi, who's played by Adam beach. Now I like Adam beach quite a bit. I think he's, uh, he's a really good actor. I think he's got an interesting presence. I was super stoked to see him in the cast lineup for the suicide squad when it came out a few years ago. And then I saw the movie and I was in entirely let down. I don't know if either of you saw that, but he plays uh, the DC character, I guess, Slipknot, who... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had never really heard of the character, but I'm like, oh, it's Adam Beach. That's going to be great. He's in one scene. Yeah. And then is unceremoniously killed off, and that's it. So, spoilers for Suicide Squad. I'm not sorry. (laughs) He was my favorite actor in this movie. I thought he did the best job overall of anybody else yeah he had a lot of meat for his role but it was inconsistent uh, I, for me is my one problem you know i uh mark ruffles i thought mark ruffles did, did really well with what oh absolutely ruffalo was great he played pappas um another yeah. one of the soldiers and then the guy that was the um the uh flamethrower so that was Harrigan, played by Brian Van Holt. Now, I did want to talk about him because I love Brian Van Holt. He had a period of time in the early 2000s. He showed up in uh, a movie called Basic with John Travolta, directed by John McTiernan, that I love that, didn't love get that a, movie. did not get love a big it. release. But, oh, man, is that such oh, a good movie. He's Sam in Jackson that. wonderful in that movie. Oh, yes, he did. So you got him. He, he was in Basic. He was in this, which I liked him in quite a bit. He was in uh, a movie with um, Ed Burns called Confidence that came out right around the same time as uh, Ocean's Eleven, so it kind of got swept under the rug, but it was it was a little bit different. I really I like I that movie. Yeah? It's got uh, Rachel Weisz in it, too, I think. Edward Burns. Yeah. Um, yep. Andy Garcia. And he's he's great in all of those movies, and I don't know why his career never went beyond kind of the side character in these movies, because I think he has a really great presence. I enjoyed him in this. I wish he would have been in it more. He was just on a show called deputy that lasted a season. Oh, really? On Fox. Okay. Um, it was the show with him and I can't remember the, the guys, the main character's name. Hmm. So I know he but, popped uh, up in 
I want to say it was Agents of Shield. Maybe he popped up in. I remember seeing him in that a couple of couple he was of on episodes. Too. Mm, okay, but he I just I I kind of always felt like he would have based on those movies from the early two thousands. I really thought he would get more starring roles. And he just seems to always be kind of a co starring roles. But I love him. And it was yeah, interesting. I for, for Steve Dorf. Mm, okay. Show. <laughs> you were saying, Don? I thought he did a phenomenal job of of taking the character from that wide-eyed naive save the world type of person into a, a veteran soldier I thought mm-hmm. he did an excellent job of moving that along yeah rather quickly and and that's one yeah. thing with the movies you don't really get a good sense of time like how long they're doing this how many days it feels like maybe a couple of days but it, obviously it took longer but yeah, I he was great because he was one of the few that really had an arc where he sort of starts out real gung ho, but after seeing kind of what because he's he's the guy with the with the flamethrower, which looked amazing, um, and after seeing like the effects of what that did, you could see him changing a little bit and kind of realizing, ooh, this isn't that great. It was him and Noah Emmerich as Chick were the two that really changed throughout the movie. Chick was the uh, the racist. Yo, I, uh, <laughs> except for Adam Beach, I thought. It, yeah, okay. He did a really good job of taking it uh, along the line too. Uh, well, Adam Beach, the thing with him and his character that I really liked was you saw him grow. I just felt like there were like there were there was stuff missing. We were missing some story. Um, or something. I felt I felt like his transition maybe happened a little quicker than I than I feel like it should have, but but maybe it was it was just the whole like his friend getting killed and then learning that oh it was Nick Cage it was Joe that killed his friend because he admits to it. Kind of pushed him over the edge. Um. But yeah, so you had uh, we talked about Mark Ruffalo. Love Mark Ruffalo in anything. Always anything doesn't matter what he does. Uh, Peter Stormare as Helmstead or the Viking. Um, it, Ooh, that was weird. My flat, my lights just flickered, uh, but I'm still here. So, well, what the hell is that? All right. If I lose you guys, we'll know why. Um, so Peter Stormare as Helmstead, did you did either of you think that he was supposed to be um an American soldier? Or was he supposed to be a European in the American army? I thought he was supposed to be uh an American just like maybe wasn't born here. Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Yeah, because I love Peter Stormare. I love him, and he's always like he's such a fun character actor. But he can't do. I've never American. seen him young. This is the first thing I've ever seen like he had a young look. Really? I mean, he. Well, yeah, I guess he did look old, or kind of old in uh, Armageddon, because that was a yeah. few years before this. Mm-hmm. He can't do an American accent to save his life. Like, whew, no. <laughs> But you, you know what? He was on prison break, and I don't remember him having an accident. Well, if he if he did it on prison break, 
Maybe, but man, he didn't do it in here. Like, nope. not at all. Uh, I, I mean, uh, Jason Isaacs as Major Mellets did a better American accent, and his was not exactly. I didn't think he to me. tried to do an accent. I thought he sounded Scottish. Well, that could be. I don't know. I mean, he definitely didn't sound like like Jason Isaacs normally does, but. Uh, I mean, and that was a fun little uh, little bit of stunt casting to put Jason Isaacs in there, um, and then Christian Slater as Ox, who I feel like was supposed to be in the movie more. Yeah, you know? I felt like they could have done more with that character. Like there was a lot with him and Charlie that never you just never saw, and I feel like they could have done more with that. Um, and then a very young Martin Henderson as Nellie. And he, he just looked like a baby. I mean, he's the bright eyed, you know, blue eyes and clean shaven one, but he just looked like the baby of the group. And he was the only one that looked the age that any of them would have actually been had they been in the Marine Corps in World War II. Because Mark Ruffalo right. was almost... He was in his 30s, so a little bit old, but not not terribly. But Martin Henderson, I think, was only in his mid-20s at this point. And another one where it's I felt like they had more... Yeah, mid-20s. I felt like there was just more, uh, more story that we weren't getting from all these side characters that I wanted. I wanted more screen time with Harrigan, with Nellie, with Pappas to give you that camaraderie, and it was a lot of Nicolas Cage and Adam Beach. And I don't know... So I don't know if either of you kind of know a little bit of the backstory on this movie, but we mentioned it at the top of the show. John Woo directed this. If you hadn't told me with a title card at the beginning of the movie that it was a John Woo film, I wouldn't have believed you. Because I would have known it. Yeah, it it doesn't look like your typical John Woo action film, right? There there are parts in action that I could see. Okay, John Woo put his finger in like scenes yeah um there were no dubs surprisingly no no in fact i had a note where i was like slow motion birds but they're not doves because it was just a shot of like some cranes or something <laughs> yeah. no, no. Uh, there was the one where he was looking at a um a, a bird sitting there and he yeah. said you're in my way move mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah this didn't have the the feel of it now this movie had a budget of $115 million and it was shot in, it was shot for a uh, Christmas 2001 release. So the original um, idea was this was going to be a big breakout dramatic film for John Woo. He wanted to do kind of this epic war film. And so it was going to be a Christmas 2001. It was going to be up for Oscar consideration. The original cut of this movie was 153 minutes long. Jesus. Uh, then 9-11 happened and the studio told him no and made him cut the film down to 134 minutes and kind of recut sort of the tone to it. So it ended up coming out summer of 2002. So they changed it from like this, you know, war epic kind of Oscar bait film to a summer blockbuster style release. And it wasn't that. And you can kind of feel that tone because it's so, I felt like at two hours and 14 minutes, this was really long for two hours and 14 minutes. Uh, yeah, I thought it was long. 
like I said, I it didn't feel like they got into any of the character. No, not not even the two main ones. There was there was a lot of interaction between the two of them, but it didn't feel like we got the essence of it. No, it felt like like what Wu wanted to do got chopped up and made into this war film. And he, I'm sure, because he's quoted as saying, um, so this was the second to last U.S. film he did. He did Paycheck the next year with Ben Affleck. And after that, he left Hollywood. Oh, yeah. yeah. I didn't realize that was his movie. Him mm-hmm. and uh, Aaron Eckhart. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, after that movie, Wu left Hollywood and he, he was quoted as saying, all Hollywood offers me is crap or big action pictures. I want to do something good. And so he went back to Hong Kong. And then he didn't uh, didn't do anything for a couple of years, and he started doing some real big epic films. So I think, I feel like this was was kind of his idea to start doing that. Um, Red Cliff and Red Cliff 2 were the things he did after this, uh, outside of a couple of shorts. And he did the, the video game Stranglehold. Um. I kind of wish I could see his version, even if like this felt really long. And of course I, the, the cut that they're talking about is another like half hour longer, but I kind of want to see it. Cause I want to see what John Woo could do with more character, more, more time to develop that because the whole point of this movie was this, the, the bond or not bond between um, Enders and Yahtzee. Right. And whether or not mm-hmm. they're going to, because you you got a little bit of that with with Ox and Whitehorse. So the idea is that these Navajo code talkers, these Marines are meant to protect the code, not the code talker. And they want to keep them alive, but if there's a chance they're going to get caught, they're, they're instructed to kill them, which I felt like got kind of glossed over for most of the movie until it was needed. And again, that's sort of, was that a John Woo thing or was that the studio making him change that thing? Because when it came down to it, Christian Slater couldn't do it, right? He, he had the chance to shoot um, White Horse, and he just he couldn't, and he tried to save him, which didn't end well for, for Ox. That, by the way, came out of nowhere. I did not expect the decapitation. Yeah, like, no. who decided, like, who's walking around with a samurai sword in the middle of a war? Um, I think that wasn't uncommon for the Japanese army in World War II. I don't well, like the officers. And but, I wouldn't have had a problem but we didn't see a sword. Yeah, that's true. We didn't really. Like, if I had just seen a sword, like, in the beach scene, if any of those soldiers had been, like, running around with swords on their side, I mm-hmm. said, okay. Whatever. Right, but it sort All of right, came out of nowhere out. for you? Yeah. I mean, this guy came out with a sword, like, it was the primary yeah, that's true. Kind of did. Yeah, it's not like he had a gun or something. Right. It's yeah, like no, he, he attacked. He, we're we're going to ambush this uh, town with a sword. <laughs> They've got machine guns. Whatever, you know. Uh, Norm in the chat is saying it's usually the generals or captains that carried stuff like that. I think so. You might be. Um, you might be right there. But yeah, that and and it just came out of nowhere too. Like. That was the other thing I read was apparently the the longer the three hour cut of this was much more violent than this was. Um, yeah, I want to. I, I might be interested to see that version of the movie. I would be because I want to see like you had um, Harrigan Brian Van Holt's character having this like 
this moment after he burns out that pillbox of, you know, reflection and like, what am I doing with my life type of thing? I feel like they would have gone into that a lot more and gone into that more with Ruffalo's character and with, uh, give chick chick is the only one who has any kind of an arc that really feels authentic because he's such an asshole and he's such a dick to them until yeah, if he had gotten it. I would have been mad. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's the, he's the character you want to see be the one to die on the field of battle and he doesn't, but he also has that moment because it, and it's not the moment where Charlie saves his life by throwing the knife at him and he hits the guy behind him, which is cliche action, whatever. It's after that when he's reflecting back on it and he's like, man, I can remember sitting, listening to my grandfather talk about hunting Indians. He's like, he's just having this reflection of like realizing that that wasn't as good as he thought it was and maybe things can change. So I liked that. It's, it's tropey, it's cliche, but I still liked it. And, but again, you could have had more of that with chick. You could have had Papas and Nelly have get, give a reason why they're, why were they so close? Right? Like, because they were, Nelly was like following him around like a little lost puppy. Mm-hmm. But why had they gone to basic together? Were they, did they know each other before they enlisted? Like what happened there? So I just feel like there's parts and pieces of this that are missing. Yeah, I thought that was one of the better moments of the movie where he's reflecting on on his grandparents and stuff. Yeah, no, it was good. It was a nice human moment because it it felt genuine after he had, I mean, he had done these terrible things like attacking uh, Ben while he's bathing and trying to pass it off as, oh, I thought he was a Japanese soldier because he wasn't wearing his uniform. Like, you know, he was just uh, an out and out racist and so to have him then be like well no genuine reflection to it i felt was a nice piece for his character i just want more stuff like that i want more because it felt like it just felt like there was more of that in the story that we we missed in uh for longer war sequences and cg planes because if you notice there was no real planes in this movie that was the one thing that stuck out to me really bad I thought overall they, the. Go ahead. I was say they couldn't get that top gun. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> couldn't afford it at one hundred and fifteen million. Yeah. Um, because I mean the overall like the battle scenes look great. The cinematography was really good in this. The the scenery that they they were shooting, um, whether it was Monument Valley or the island, was phenomenal. Um, the planes looked a little didn't haven't aged very well. I will say. Um, but no, the rest of it. Very many. It wasn't like it was, you know, a bunch of planes. I just, they'd fly two over and that would be the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like Pearl Harbor, which yeah. ironically came out the year before this movie. So I can kind of tell you where I, I have to wonder some where that budget went, but I guess they, they put a lot into practical for the war scenes and there are a lot of them. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned Pearl Harbor because that's a war movie that I think that might be my least favorite war movie ever that I've watched. Well, which which this, Pearl Harbor, though? Like the middle 90 minutes, that's the, the attack on Pearl Harbor, or the love story that bookends it 
on either side. <laughs> you know, okay, so that's a good point. And I remember watching Pearl Harbor on DVD, and it was two discs. Mm-hmm. And I have always said that if the movie stopped at the end of the first disc, it would have been a much better movie. Oh, absolutely. Than to make me watch the, the second disc. And I kind of feel that way about this. I, I feel like if they've found a way to tie up the movie after the village ambush, yeah, it would have been a better movie. I don't I didn't really think they needed to go up that mountain. No, they didn't. They didn't I also think somebody to die. that's what it was. It was a, it was a death march. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the, and and it was almost as if they needed the Joe Ender's character to die at the end, so they had to come up with a reason for that to happen, which I didn't think was necessary. I thought Joe could have could have made it i think so i because i think he was starting to come around and realize sort of that he didn't that he had something to live for like it felt like for the first two hours of this movie he didn't have anything to live for but the last 15 minutes he was starting to get that and then they kill him off um but i also think like you could have skipped the solomon islands thing at all you didn't have to show that because the stuff at the hospital then felt weird because why, why is this particular nurse, um, Rita, like, why is she helping him by having him, helping him cheat his hearing tests? I feel like that was a waste of casting for the amount that we saw for it. So mm-hmm. like, yeah. What we didn't get any backstory to that at all. We don't know why she's helping him, why they, whether they have a thing or not. Yeah. Because she obviously had something for him. She kept sending him letters. He didn't read half of them. And the voiceover, I didn't like either. The voiceover of her letters could have gone. And that whole subplot could have gone. Like, we just didn't need that. That felt tacked on. Yeah. Maybe in the longer version, some more of this makes sense. I hope so, honestly. This movie, by the way, so $115 million budget. You know what this movie made? Uh, Stateside. Uh, 80-something, right? Well, stateside was 40, uh, and worldwide was about 78. So, yikes. That was a bomb. And, and see, I think good. if they'd have wrapped it around the wind or the code talkers, because mm-hmm. my wife and I sort of said the same thing. This was a war movie that they loosely tied to the wind talkers. Instead of a win, a movie about the wind talkers that happened to be during the war. Yeah, and I think now this is pure speculation on my part. I think John Woo wanted to tell the movie you're talking about, and the studio decided after nine eleven we're going to shift it from Christmas to summer and we're going to make it a war movie. That's that's some of the stuff that I've read, and that kind of tracks and makes sense with what how disjointed the movie felt, right? Because I wanted, I went into this. Yeah, I went into this really wanting to enjoy it. This is the same era. This is a few years after Saving Private Ryan. It's the same year as We Were Soldiers. World War II movies are, are I typically enjoy. What Two they years have to after say. U five. Yep, that's another. It's another good one, and I like John Woo, and I was really interested to see what he did with World War II, and I knew what he had done kind of after this with reading about stuff like Red Cliff and all of that. So I was really curious to see. And this wasn't the first time that John Woo had worked with Nick Cage because they'd worked together on Face Off. And he'd worked with Christian Slater on Broken Arrow. So I was really interested and I really wanted this to be good. And I was kind of 
let down. It was just sort of a meh. Like at the end, I was like, well, it was a movie and it was long. And that's really what I'm going to remember about it. Mm-hmm. I I will say I didn't feel like it was as long as it was. Um, even though I wasn't in love with it, there, I think there was enough action that pushed the movie along. I yeah, wouldn't I, say it was a bad movie. No, it's not bad. I should I should say that it's not a bad movie. Yeah. I was kind of hoping for more out of it. And and yeah, some of that's my own. For something a little more, but I don't think it was horrible. Yeah, it's certainly watchable again. I mean, if for nothing else, like I said, Nick Cage was good. Um, he has kind of one little explosive thing where he yells at um, at the Peter Stormare character, um, which I thought was funny. And when I was capturing some audio, I captured that and I kept making fun of like he says, uh, "Oh, what is it? I've got it." It's it's this where he uh, where he says, "I can't do it," and then I can't perform my duty. When you hear that, it sounds better. But when you see his face while he's saying that, I was like, "Can you do that one again? Can you give me one more take of that, please? Give a little more emotion." Like he just looks, his face is just blank, and it just cracked me up. I couldn't help but laugh. But I mean, overall, I thought he was good in this. This is one of those Nick Cage movies where he's he's trying. And then Adam Beach too. Adam Adam Beach, I think, did a lot and did a, a good job with the material he was given. Um, I liked how because he was so fresh faced and naive when he showed up on that base, right? And he's like trying so hard to be friendly. Meanwhile, Nick Cage, uh, Joe Ender's is like, I want nothing to do with this guy because he doesn't want to form any kind of an attachment. And I got that. Like he he yeah. he realized that immediately. I cannot become attached to this guy. So he's, you know, he's being kind of an ass to him, whatever. That makes sense. And he slowly becomes a little little friendlier with him. I just felt like we, I wanted more of that relationship building. And we kind of missed, I feel like we missed bits and pieces there. Again, probably in that three-hour cut. Yeah. But overall, I mean, I can't, I feel like this movie should have done better than it did at the box office for sure. I think that that's a disservice to the movie, both for John Woo and um, just the movie in general, because there was a lot, you can tell there was a lot of work put into the visual style of the movie and the, the effect work, the stunt work, the practical uh, work for uh, all the war scenes, how accurate they did as far as like getting weapons and, and all of that. I think with the exception maybe of the, the one, um, the gunnery sergeant, walking around with a pump action shotgun seemed a little odd to me. Like you're not going to do a whole lot with a shotgun on the battlefield. I don't yeah, think. really? Yeah, you know, I, I think the problem that the movie ran into is something you said earlier. I think it just wasn't as good as the other world war two movies that were around it. Yeah, no, and, you're, you're not wrong there. Um, because it was, what do we say? It was after U five seven one, right? Yes. Yeah, and this it was, was after Pearl Harbor too, right? It was. Yeah. Although and there's another, there's another one. Well, there was the Mel Gibson one. We were soldiers. That was the same year. Never watched that one either. I yeah, did, but Mel I, Gibson. 
Yeah, I saw that one in the theater. That one, that was a good movie. Although I think, was that World War II or was that, that might have been Vietnam era. I don't remember now. Mm-hmm. But either way, I mean, this this movie kind of suffers a little bit from expectation, uh, yeah. not meeting expectations by the fact that it just, I mean, you know, it's not going to live up to some of those other movies uh, that we mentioned. And that hurts it because I think in some ways it gets unfairly compared and in some ways it's fair to compare. Like it's a, it's a movie of the same era and it's a, it's made in the same era as a U five, seven, one as a saving private Ryan or a Pearl Harbor. I think I, I enjoy start to finish. I like this better than Pearl Harbor. Although the middle part of Pearl Harbor, again, the actual war movie part of it, I enjoyed that was a long slog in the theater too. But, um, I just think that I think that there was it was a disservice to this movie to recut it and put it out as a summer, you know, quote unquote blockbuster. I think that really hurt it more than anything. Because how yeah, do you, you, agree you know, with that. recutting and, and, and basically changing the tone of a movie after it's already been shot is is never good. So, you know, it movie movie companies keep doing and it never works out. No. Oh, and Norm in the chat mentions he doesn't matter how many times he watches it, it's he still tears up at certain points. I will say this. The end of the movie, I was starting to get choked up a little bit. I, I had grown a little bit attached to some of these characters and watching them dying off. And then that scene at the top of the plateau in Monument Valley where um, Ben is with his son. He's with George and he's, he's got the dog tag and he's telling him, you know, when you tell the story, tell him he was, he was a friend of mine type of thing. I choked up a little bit at that. That was a cool moment. It was a good moment, but I think it might've been better if Joe was there. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. You know, no, that's not what they were talking about. They were talking about band of brothers in the chat. Well, fine, whatever. I'm talking about this movie. Pay attention. (laughs) But, you know, if, if Peter brought him back to meet his family and said, this is my buddy from the war, I yeah. thought that would have been a better moment. No, I, I, I will agree with that. That would have been really good. Um, and I think, I think if this movie was made within the last, say, five to ten years, that's how it would have ended, right? You wouldn't have the cliched ending of the guy has to die on the field of battle. Um. I think you would have brought him back because that would have been a really cool moment for, for Joe to get to meet Ben's wife and his son. Cause that was really the bonding moment. That was the moment they started to bond was when uh, Ben mentions his son and they talk about him a little bit. And that was kind of the, the spark that got the two of them to, to really relate in some way. Cause that's the other thing. We know nothing about Joe outside of the war. We get a little bit of his backstory from the major, you know, that he, he beat up, uh, the the disciplinarian at his Catholic school, and then he was raised Catholic. But we don't know anything about his family, so you know maybe somehow the mention of a son triggered something in him. I don't know because we get that moment where he helps the the little uh, kid on the island who's having ear pain or whatever, and gives him his painkillers, which I thought again was kind of a cool scene. So I don't know. I think overall, like overall, it's a good movie. It's just there's so many better World War II movies, especially from the era that this one was made to watch that I think, you know, 
your your time is better yeah. served to watch Saving Private Ryan or to watch U five seven one or or something like that than than this one. Unfortunately, it's one of those movies you get to the end of it and you say that was a good movie, but it was missing something and and you can't quite put your finger on it. Yeah, and it's right around the same time that Nick Cage was making. Um, he made Bringing Out the Dead, which we covered last year for Cage of Palooza, um, and I thought he was really good in that. I like when when he takes a role and really kind of gets into it and isn't just there to collect a paycheck and isn't you know he's actually trying. And this is one I feel like he was trying in this overall. His drunk acting is horrendous, but it's really hard to act <laughs> drunk. No, it's really bad. It was. Oh man, that was that, that, that scene was horrible. <laughs> it it was. Um, you know, when I go through and capture audio and stuff um, to make like the intro or or anything like that, I just skipped right past that scene because I'm like, yes, this is just like acting drunk is already hard. I get that. I've tried it. It's not an easy thing to do, but you can do better than that. And the other thing too was they they make this big deal about his inner ear and his equilibrium being off, but none of that affected him after he left the hospital at all. That just like got completely ignored. Yeah. He had a couple of moments. He had a couple, cause there was a, a point where, um, uh, now I can't remember Adam Beach's character's name. Um, but he asked him about it. Yeah. Well, so it was in that scene where he's acting drunk. He's reaching for the bottle, and Ben says, like, how much of that crap do you have? And he doesn't respond because he can't hear out of that ear at all. And when he turns back around, he says, you can't. That ear's not working so well. And he mentions, yeah, it's my inner ear, and I'm all, you know, I got no balance anymore or any of that. But as soon but as isn't there a scene when they're in kind of the little, um, what do they call those, like little pits? Like before, before Adam Beach goes to run, no, 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 I'm sorry. Nicholas Cage's character is going to run, throw something into the uh, into the pit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got the satchel charge. He's going to run it up yeah, there. And he, and he stumbles. Mm. I can't remember. I don't know if it's that scene or if when Adam Beach's character is going to pretend like he is Japanese and Nicholas Cage goes with him. But there's one of those where he makes like a little stumble before kind of or he's, t- he's popping a pill to fill before yeah messed up. it could be and I know in that scene you're talking about where they, he marches him in as a you know as a prisoner and the the Japanese soldier clocks him in the ear and like he lets out that that scream and that's a very it's a very Nick Cage moment and that's you know makes sense that would hurt like hell and then he's fine right after that so I guess it's just adrenaline is that powerful. <laughs> I don't know. It maybe, just, maybe it knocked back in the line. It could be. And it, and it was good for him. Hey, that, that's as good a, good a reason as anything. Um, <laughs> I did. Okay. So I think for me, the best acted scene from cage was the scene right after, uh, Ox gets decapitated and he catches up to, and finds that the Japanese soldiers have grabbed Charlie and he has to make the decision. He tries to shoot and his gun is empty. So he has to make the decision to throw the grenade 
because there's there's some subtle interplay between him and Charlie. Charlie is struggling, but at the same time, they're kind of doing the like you know the slight nod, like yes, go ahead and do it type of thing. And he's really fighting with the the whole thing of can I do this? Can I kill one of my own guys or not? I thought that was really good because that scene and then the scene right after it where um, Ben comes back from you know he conveniently wasn't in the village when everything got attacked. Nice plot contrivance there. Uh, but Ben comes back and he's asking him where where Charlie and Ox are, and he's like he's he's over there. And he points and he go, looks around the corner and there's Charlie's been you know blown up by a grenade. But I think like that overall kind of section of the movie, I thought Cage was really good in it because you you felt the struggle he was having of do I do this? Do I not? He had the worst looking throw of a grenade I've ever seen because he sort of shot put the grenade like it was really. I don't know. It just looked funny. But I think that scene acting-wise was pretty good. Yeah. I, I think both of them acted that scene really well. I think so. So, I remember watching that feeling like it was, it was kind of an emotionless piece where he, where he tells like he's over there like mm-hmm. he tells him he's over there like he's gonna be like smoking a cigarette or something <laughs> yeah yeah some of that i think was just the shock of having to do that and like he just was trying to come to grips with it i don't know that's how i read that anyways like he's he's so like wrapped up in and taken back by what he had to do and how he feels about it. And now he's got to tell this guy that his friend is dead, that he just doesn't quite know how to do it. Um, I don't know, but like I say, for me, that was kind of the best Nick cage moment of the movie, that, that little section there, because for the, for the rest of it, he's fine. Um, as far as where, where this sort of sits for me and sort of the pantheon of Nick cage movies that I have seen, for me, it leans towards the he cared about this movie, um, but he's also not. It's not one of those where it's like you can tell he was having a real fun time with it because he doesn't have a character to really just go crazy with. That's where Nick Cage is kind of at his best is when he gets to just have fun with something. Um, you know, last year we watched Vampire's Kiss, and that movie is insane, but you could tell he was just having a blast just doing whatever the hell he felt like. And he even says it in the commentary tracks that he did 20 something years later, where he's like, I'm not even sure what I was doing at this point. You know, I, I was, I, my whole, my whole motivation here was to make my eyes bulge out of my head as much as I could like that kind of stuff. And when he just gets to like have free reign, it can be a lot of fun. Um, but I think this is, this is Nick Cage showing he can act. So I put it, I kind of lean it in that direction. It's towards that bringing out the dead Lord of war, um, oh Lord, Lord, that's a good movie. Yeah, uh, Leaving Las Vegas is another one he's really good in, but it's not the like never, over never the top. Um, I haven't either, and I really, I've seen bits and pieces. I haven't seen the whole movie, but it won him an Oscar, so he had to be decent in it. And what I've seen it of sounds it, like sounds like you got a movie for another episode. Charlie. I do, I definitely do. Um. One of the nice things about doing Nick Cage month is that I can keep coming back to it every year and I've got stuff to watch. But no, I think I like, I like Nicholas Cage as crazy as he is. And 
believe me, the rest of this month we're going to get into some crazy stuff. So if you if you want uh, if you want to find out about that, you got to come back and listen to more because we're going to be talking about Ghost Rider. We're going to be talking about Raising Arizona, and Not just Ghost Rider. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to do both of them? I'm going to watch both because uh, I'm definitely going to talk about both. Because um, that's well, I'll save those for next week, but. But I, I just, I like Nick Cage. I think, you know, he was, because he grew up as a Coppola, he got afforded the ability to really do more, right? He got a lot more leash uh, than a lot of actors would, and he got jobs that other actors wouldn't have. But I'm, in some ways, I don't have a problem with that because we get some of this crazy stuff, like him doing The Rock, Con Air, and Face Off in consecutive years, and just the amazing thing that those three movies are because they're so different he's so different in each one of them face off is one of my favorite movies yeah and that's a great movie yeah and that's one where woo is getting to do the crazy action stuff and cage is getting to just have fun he just gets to go nuts him and travolta both and it's a well-acted movie Mm -hmm. oh i think so oh i might have to go watch that tonight (laughs) (laughs) um right so i did uh i will give out the lineup of the rest of this month uh for nick cage cage palooza and i made i started making a sounder like a little little 15 second sound bite and i don't remember where i put it now so i can't play it but then i watched that uh cage rage music video and i was like well that's way better than anything i would have (laughs) made um but yeah coming up for the Nick Cage celebration, we have... So I mentioned Ghost Rider is going to be next week. Uh, and I'm probably going to watch both of them. And, who boy, that's... There's a lot to unpack with that one. Um, the week after that, I'm watching one called Pay the Ghost that I had not heard of before. It's from 2015. And um, it was suggested uh, by Bill from Run Jump Stomp, who's going to be my, my guest that week. So I'm really kind of looking forward to that one because I know nothing about it. Uh, and then I am going to be watching Lord of War. Um, I love Lord of War. I haven't seen it in a few years, so I'm kind of looking forward to watching it again because I remember it being really good. And we're going to finish off with Raising Arizona because I like doing the the good movies as well as the the cheese, and Raising Arizona is great. So is that the is that the one he did with Elizabeth Shue, or is that Leaving Las Vegas? That was Leaving Las Vegas. Raising Arizona is the Coen Brothers one he did in the late 80s with uh, Holly Hunter, where they steal a baby. That is a fantastic movie. Yes, it is. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Um, So that's what's coming up the rest of Nick Cage month. I can't wait. And, of course, you you get a Nick Cage laugh and it sounds a little something like this. (laughs) That's him. That's drunk Nick Cage. Um, oh, and it's not a war movie if you don't get somebody yelling no. So this one might be a little bit loud, but uh, I had to capture it. <laughs> that was the end of that wonderfully acted scene on the Solomon Islands where he, he has a grenade blow up right next to him and all he gets is a little hearing, a little inner ear damage. That kind of surprised. Like watching it, I was like, "He didn't. He doesn't survive this. Come on." 
could have oh. done without that whole and first And seemingly part. no yeah. grenade got close to him, and he caught a frag that killed him. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? I mean, <laughs> there's there's no rules in this movie. They just kind of made it up as they went along. Like, all the people running in the field, and some of them get shot, some of them don't. You see people get shot in the leg, and then they get up and just keep running. Uh, which was pretty surprising. Or when Van Holt, so when the Harrigan character, he's given the little girl chocolate, which was a, a fun little touching scene. And then he gets shot in the shoulder. Did you notice when he picks her up to move, there's no more, like they took the, they didn't have the squibs on there and she's grabbing onto his shoulder. I happened to notice that when I was watching, like, oh, that that couldn't have been, like that would not have happened at all. Um, yeah. By yeah. the way, Joe Enders was one hell of a shot. Oh, boy, was he ever. Did he miss? <laughs> Man, no. Nobody in this movie missed. Actually, no, I don't think anyone did because Pappas, uh, Mark Ruffalo's character, comes up with that rifle, and he was just, I mean, mowing them down. And he, it was a, you know, that was a single, I think, semi-automatic rifle. Like, it wasn't even, that was crazy. Yeah. Not a lot of reloading in this movie either. No, except for Other Joe. Than, yeah, Joe reloads his pistol, and his uh, he's got the machine gun too that he reloads quite. Yeah, a bit. I guess you're right. He did reload that a couple. But times. I didn't really see anybody else ever reload anything. Just just spray and pray. Um. Yeah. So, like overall, I think this is worth seeing, even if it's just once. Although I want to see the longer version of it, but. I want to preface that by saying if you like war movies, I think it's worth seeing. If you're not that into war movies or not like a big war movie buff and you're just kind of a movie fan, you can skip this and you're not going to miss anything because it is a bit long. It is two hours and 15 minutes long and it feels every minute of that to me. Um, but if you're a big fan of Adam Beach, if you're a big fan of uh, war movies, I think it's worth seeing because Adam Beach, again, he's he's good in this. I know Don agrees. Adam Beach is very good in this. We just need more Adam Beach. He was young in this, too. 72, so I guess he's coming up on, like, late 20s, coming up on 30. Seemed like he was younger to me. You know, and now I feel like he's moved out of the movie scene. Like, he's got that good gig on SVU and... Yeah, well, I mean, he did uh, did some episodes of Nancy Drew this past year. Um, Nancy. Yeah, he was oh, the yeah. chief. Yeah, I watched that. I forgot. Well, he's doing Hitman. Oh, he is. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So the third try at making a Hitman movie. We'll see if this one's any better. I actually like the first one. That was the one with Timothy Oliphant, right? Yeah, yeah, I like the first one. I didn't see um, the second one. So I don't know. You didn't miss anything. <laughs> it's okay. It's not as good as the first one. Fair enough. It's the guy from uh, oh, Timothy. What's his last name? Rupert? Or no, 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 no. No, no that's, his first name's not Timothy. But if you oh. ever watch Hobo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then Love that's plays. Yeah, I just think overall, like, I wanted more out of this movie. And when I read the cast and I'm seeing, you know, P. 
Peter Stormare, Mark Ruffalo, Brian Van Holt, and I'm just like, I'm getting excited, and then I'm watching it, and I'm, I don't get enough of them in the movie. And, you know, it just kind of fell flat at the end. So it's unfortunate because it really was not quite the straw that broke the back, but it was what really pushed John Woo out the door of Hollywood movies and sent him back, um, which is too bad because you look at some of the work that John Woo did in the 90s, and sure, he had a style, and I get wanting to branch out and do something different from that style. But man, when he was on doing Hard Target, doing Face Off, uh, even Mission Broken Impossible Mission Impossible 2, which is my least favorite Mission Impossible, but when I watch it back now, it is. And the reason that it is is because when I watch it now, I watch it as a John Woo movie set in the Mission Impossible world. But when I saw it the first time, it was too much of like only Ethan and not enough of the, the team for Mission Impossible. It just felt weird to me. But as a, as a John... That's fair. Uh, but I, I like the second. No, I probably not... watched the second more than I've watched any of the other. Hmm. Uh, I've, I've loved some of the recent ones. Rogue Nation and uh, Ghost Protocol are really good. But, you know, I mean, you watch Mission Impossible 2. You watch... Um, Face Off is probably my favorite Wu film. I love Face Off. So Yeah, absolutely. I wish that uh, Hollywood could have treated him a little bit better towards the end. Yeah. Because this wasn't very good, and I don't think it's his fault. And Paycheck, I don't know enough about to, to say one way or the other, but that one didn't yeah, do very good either. Great. So, yeah. Well, thanks, guys, for coming on this week. This was fun. Uh, you know, Tim, it, it took some convincing, but I'm glad you, you suffered through the movie for us. I'm glad I watched it. It's not like I wanted my two hours back. Well, that's good. At least that. Like, you know, they can't all be winners, but I want to at least have something where you, you don't feel like you've, you don't mourn the time you spent watching a movie, even if it's a little yeah. bit longer. Um, so, yeah, like I said, coming up next week, I'm going to be talking uh, Ghost Rider and probably, well, I'm going to watch both. So I'll be mentioning Spirit of Vengeance quite a bit, too, because whew, the first Ghost Rider is enough. But, man, the second one is it's a whole other bag of cats. Um, but I got my friend David and Christina coming back for that. So come back next Sunday, 8 p.m., uh, and and hear our thoughts on Ghost Rider because that's going to be a ton of fun. Because that movie, if there was ever a case for Nicolas Cage wanting to become a cartoon character, um, I think that's the one. Uh, so you guys both are on a show with uh, a third person who was in the chat room for a little bit earlier, but decided he couldn't do the show tonight. Uh, you do a show. Uh, tell people about it. Uh, we do a show on video games. Uh, it's called Joystick and Mouse. You can find it at joystickandmouse.com. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> I'll be on here tomorrow. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, Sorry, Monday right? nights at 8 o'clock. Okay. Yeah, and, and I have been a guest on the show once before, and I listened to it quite a bit. I love the, the show. You guys do a good job with that, and it's it's fun to hear from not a, like, I don't want to say not uh, an in-the-industry idea, but a more casual look at some of the video games out there, um, and I really appreciate it. So it's a good show, Joystick and Mouse, and that's Monday nights, and I think it's on Alex's channel, right? 
it is. Okay. Yeah, Twitch, thank you, sir. Twitch.tv slash Alex Albisu. Um, so, guys, thanks. This was fun. Uh, we got to do it again. Uh, next time, I'll pick a better movie for you, Tim. <laughs> or I'll let you pick it next time. Okay. And, Don, always a pleasure. Uh, we just had – oh, um, today is Brian Ibbett's birthday. So we got to say a happy birthday to uh, Coverville himself, Brian Ibbett, who was also the host of America's Next Top Podcaster that both Don and I were on this last season. So just want to get that out there. Um, right. Come here. Yeah, so we had a little technical difficulty at the beginning of the show, so thanks, everybody, for uh, for – powering through and sticking with us for for all of this um this was a ton of fun as always uh i just love doing this show and i love watching these movies even if they're a little bit boring but nicholas cage is the gift that keeps on giving and he did he did have his little freak out so i'm happy with that um right but until next week and ghost rider uh everybody enjoy your movies and it's a weird time out there so just be excellent to each other this has been wait you haven't seen Pied Piper of the Pigs. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>